The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. chapter 11, where we're continuing in this series on this wonderful little book about God's mercy and love to his people. We've been looking at some of the major middle sections of the book over the past weeks. At the beginning of the book, we find out about Hosea and his wife and some of those startling things and the picture of marriage that we looked at there and what that meant to teach. And then we've been going through Chapters that really deal with God's discipline, God's judgments being revealed, and Hosea picturing Israel's sin in different ways, seeking to address the people and have them hear the Word of God and turn from their ways of sin. And then there's another pretty radical change in chapter 11 where we come to tonight, and we'll see that the metaphor shifts here, and we'll look at that in terms of God's love as a father. Let us hear God's Word Hosea 11, verses 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love, I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent. Swords will flash in their cities and will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Father, we pray for your help as we seek to understand your inspired and inerrant word. Be with us, we pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen. The little boy had a godly mother who raised him with God's word. His father would come home from time to time, but his work kept him away for months at a time. Little John loved his mother dearly, but tragedy struck when he was only five, and she died. He would be raised by relatives in part, but also in part by his dad, a much rougher life than it had been with his mother. And he would take up his father's trade. He would be a sailor. He would be a man on the sea. And so thoughts of God... And the gospel of Jesus Christ 
would be pushed aside in this young man's life. He put that on a shelf and didn't even think about it as he pursued wholeheartedly a life of hedonistic pleasure and vice. He would seek wealth in the wide world, and he would become a cursing, drinking, gambling, ungodly sailor. He would feel little remorse in the awful trade of black slaves from Africa. And now you're probably knowing who this little John was. John Newton. He would see anew the love of God that he had learned at his mother's knee, and he would come to faith in Christ. John Newton, the one who would become famous in generations to come, especially for his hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton knew that he was pursued by the God of matchless love, by God's amazing grace. And you read through the stanza of that hymn, and you just, it's all of grace from beginning to end. And even when we've been there 10,000 years, it's all by God's grace. The God of amazing grace And John Newton's life was transformed by that love. From the dissolute life of his youth to become a pastor who led many to Christ and who shepherded many souls, John Newton testified that it was God's love that transformed him. And that is also the message of the book of Hosea. And especially as we come to chapter 11 and we read what the prophet tells us here, it's just an incredible description of the power of God's pursuing love. We want to consider this chapter tonight under a number of points and seek to understand what the prophet is saying in this powerful analogy about God's love as a father. The first point we want to see is this. God's pursuing love is like the love of a father for a prodigal son. God's pursuing love like the love of a father for a prodigal son. We see this in verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, that sounds familiar. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 2, and Matthew applies it to Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of God's son. Israel, in a sense, stood for God's son in the Old Testament, but ultimately it was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But here, Hosea is applying it to the nation. And he says in verse 2, But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. Depending on what translation you have, you may have a different translation. Uh, The more they called, the further they went from them. The NIV takes it a certain way here, based on the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew text is actually slightly different with the the more they called. And so it could be that they're talking about their calling, the Israelites calling out to the Baals and going further and further away from God. But whatever the case, the intent is clear. And that is, Hosea is saying, think of God as a father of a young child and think of that child abandoning and growing up to rebel against that father's love. He says, that's a picture of Israel. Now, up to this point in the book, we've had this continuing analogy of God's love and Israel's relationship to God as a marriage, and Israel as an unfaithful marriage spouse, as an unfaithful wife, as Hosea's wife was. What a powerful 
analogy that was. And now here, this another powerful analogy of God's love as a father. And here, Hosea reviews the early life of the nation. He talks about their sacrificing to the Baals, and then he backs up in verse 3, and he says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And he uses Ephraim and Israel interchangeably because Ephraim was one of the largest tribes of Israel. He says, I taught them to walk, taking them by the arms, but that they did not realize it was I who healed them. Do you ever take a nine-month-old child just beginning to walk, and the little child may want to walk and stand up and be holding onto the coffee table and and kind of launch off and, you know, falls down, can't take a step. So you take that baby's arms and you kind of bend over and, you know, you walk with the child. And the child, you know, it's kind of a way the child starts to walk on his own until that point that he doesn't want to do that. It's all by himself. But that's that's the imagery here. God as a father doting over a little baby, a little child that's just beginning to walk, and says, I took them by the arms, but they didn't realize it. They didn't have a clue. Verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. He's talking about the wilderness experience here and his care for the nation of Israel in her infancy. The people in Hosea's time might have thought, well, we're a holy nation. Look at our history. Look at our past. And Hosea, in a sense, is saying, yeah, let's look at your past. Were you holy and righteous at the beginning? No. Even from the beginning, you rebelled in the wilderness when I was holding you with cords of kindness, God says. God is like a tender parent. I was playing baseball with the grandkids the other day. I put baseball loosely in quotes because it's kind of tennis, baseball. And my younger grandson, who's three, you know, he holds the tennis racket in front of his face. And I get real close and throw the ball just so it bounces off the tennis racket. And then he runs to first base. And, I, you know, I drop the ball and stumble over to first base. And he gets by and runs to second base and, you know, and on and on. And they get a home run, you know. Well, if you're watching the Phillies, I don't know if you would say it's the same game. God is like a doting grandfather, a doting father. He so loves his people. He cares for them. He pursues them. They don't even know he's healing them. They don't even acknowledge he's feeding them and caring for them, just like a three-year-old. He thinks he hit a home run, but he really didn't. And so there's this rebellion against God. It's interesting that this is one of the few places in the Old Testament where God compares himself to a father. You may be surprised at that. It's actually very rare and very special in the Old Testament to have God described as a father. And even in places like this, God being father is always in a corporate sense, not in a personal individual sense. So he's the father of Israel as a nation. But still, it's a powerful metaphor. It's describing God's great love. And it was only with the coming of Jesus Christ and his further revelation of the Father and his teaching about God in that God revealed himself as a father to believers in an individualistic sense, as an individual, as a believer, that you can cry out, Our Father, Abba, Father, Daddy. And Jesus could say in John twenty seventeen, after his resurrection from the dead, as Mary is talking to him and he tells her, Go to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, 
to my God and your God. Astounding. Jesus would say, I'm returning to my Father and your Father. And so now we think nothing of crying out in our prayer life, in our prayer language, Abba, Father. An Old Testament Jew would never have done that. Jesus Christ has revealed the great mercy and love of God in even a further way than Hosea's time. And the astounding good news is that because Jesus Christ came incarnate in the flesh and lived and died on the cross and rose again, anyone who comes to Jesus Christ and trusts in him can now call God Father. God is not distant. God is like this God described in Hosea 11, a God who cares for you. And the New Testament is full of imagery about God and his special care for us. And so before we go any further at all, I have to ask you, can you say that you know God as your Father through faith in Jesus Christ? Or is God to you a distant force or being up there and You may know that he's there and he's created the world. You may generally know that and you may fear him in a sense and you may know something about what the Bible teaches. Maybe you've come to church for a long time, but there's no personal, intimate relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ so that your heart is raised up to God, Abba, Father, my Father, through Jesus Christ and what he did. I hope tonight that if you don't know God in that way, you will trust Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. You may not have had a father who was very good in this life. You may not have had a father at all. Every earthly father has his sins and failings, but our heavenly father is a father with perfect love. Trust in Jesus Christ. Well, the second point we read tonight, we find in our text, is that God's pursuing love is a love that disciplines his children. God's pursuing love is a love that disciplines his children. We find this in verses 5 through 7. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them, because they refuse to repent? Hosea is prophesying. He's asking the question, and it's, it's a rhetoric question. He's saying, they will return to Egypt. They will return. They will go to Assyria. Assyria will rule over them. He's prophesying about what's going to happen. In 722, Assyria is going to come in and destroy Samaria, carry off the Israelites into captivity, into exile. Some of a remnant of them will flee to Egypt. They're back to where they were at Moses' time. There's going to be judgment, in other words. Verse 5, verse 6, swords will flash. They will destroy the bars of their gates. They will put an end to their plans. All these plans, the nation, the leaders, everybody has. Just think of the destruction and how that put an end to everybody's plans. You know, the stock market of the day crashed. All the investments wiped out. You know, all the crops, all the farms taken over. In verse 7, he says it this way, My people are determined to turn from me. Verse 5 says they won't repent. Verse 7 says they're determined to turn from me. But then at the end of verse 7, notice how it says, even if they call to the Most High, he will, not, he will by no means exalt them. And Hosea here is saying, even if they cry out in their misery, 
God's not going to exalt them in that superficial kind of outcry to God. In fact, the prophets got sick. They were wearied of the people having a superficial kind of repentance, which wasn't any repentance at all. It was just a crying out to God. God often mercifully heard, but this is God's discipline that's going to fall on them. But notice what we're seeing here is this prophecy is tied right in here to this amazing description of God's love. And so the point here is that God's pursuing love at times, and with all of us it's true, uses discipline. That's one of the applications that we can draw. One of the forms that God's pursuing love takes for us is his fatherly discipline. Isn't that what Hebrews 12 talks about when he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And the author goes on to describe how every believer experiences God's discipline. That's something we have to keep in mind. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you know him as your Savior and Lord, you are absolutely assured by Scripture that your Father is working all things for your good and his glory, including the chastisements, we would say, the disciplines he brings. They are not unto condemnation. They are not part of his wrath. They are part of his faithful, fatherly discipline in your life. And they're for your good, even if you can't see it at this time. John Newton, after a period of time as a captain of a slave ship, taking many slaves from that triangular from Africa to the West Indies, back to England and back down again, his partner betrayed him at one point. And as the account goes, he chained John Newton to a tree near or on the beach with a a leg iron around his ankle for a period of months. Now, this was East Africa, and it was warm down there most of the time. Of course, it rained and things like that. So out in the elements, John Newton lived chained like an animal for months. This was before he came to know Christ. Wouldn't you think that you would start, if you had even been taught on your mother's lap about Christ, wouldn't you think that you would cry out to God in heartfelt repentance and faith then? But really, John Newton, at that point in his life, reminds me of the Israelites of Hosea's time. They're determined to turn from him. John Newton did not repent. He did not turn to faith in Christ at that point. He was filled with hatred for his captor who kept him there, feeding him and, you know, barely taking care of him. John Newton got very sick during this time. He was filled with anger and rage. He cursed against God, but he didn't trust in Jesus Christ. Yet, in looking back, he knows that God used even that very difficult suffering in his life. He was eventually freed and went back to his work again. Not a changed man at all. Suffering doesn't change us if it's not used by the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ in our lives. God's pursuing love is a love that disciplines those who belong to him. Kind of going to the other extreme to think of somebody who you might 
think of and think, well, that person probably needs hardly any discipline at all. I was reading an article in World Magazine this past week. Maybe some of you read it. It's Susan Olowski's interview with Johnny Erickson Tada. And Johnny Erickson, you know, you think, boy, what faith, how she's been used by God. And many of you might know, maybe you read the article that she was diagnosed with breast cancer in June. In addition to all the chronic pain she experiences from being a quadriplegic. For those of you who are young, I should explain who this is. I was talking to someone the other day in her late 20s, and she said, who's that? I said, oh, well, I guess I'm showing my age here. Johnny Erickson is someone who at age 17 dove into a lake and broke her neck and has been paralyzed from the neck down for 40-some years. And she's pretty famous in Christian circles for her testimony and her books and her radio ministry and her, her ministry with the handicapped. And Susan Olowski goes to interview her and talks about Johnny praying and memorizing scripture and just breaking out into hymns. You know, Johnny does that kind of thing if you know her at all. But then Johnny talks about God's discipline. And this part of the article just made me really ponder and think. It says, Susan Olowski, writing this, says, Since people often approach Johnny and want to pray for her healing, that's one of the subjects of her new book. She would love to be healed. But recently she told one of those earnest people, I want to be set free from my laziness and slothful attitudes. Who? What? Johnny? You know, She doesn't come across like that to us. Of course, we don't know her. The person was focusing on her physical healing, but Johnny says Christ's focus is our soul. She knows God is not punishing her. Christ took the punishment, but she accepts that she's being disciplined. What needs to be confessed, uprooted for my sanctification, quoting her, what is there in me that needs to be exposed and dealt with? Wow, if Johnny needs to ask that, probably all of us need to ask that, I would guess. What needs to be dealt with? What needs to be exposed? What needs to be lovingly disciplined by our Father's hand that we might be more conformed to the likeness of Christ? God's pursuing love is a love that disciplines us. Well, thirdly, we find that God's pursuing love does not contradict God's holiness and justice. Here we get to verses 8 and 9. God's pursuing love does not contradict God's holiness and justice. And here we're given a picture, a glimpse, into the heart of God. And it's like we're peering into deep mystery. We're we're saying God's pursuing love, but what about our sin? Doesn't our sin just separate us from God? How can he still love us? Listen to what Hosea writes. And he's quoting God here. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma, and how can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. So he's asking here, how can I give you, Ephraim, Israel, over to judgment? In other words, can I give you over to judgment and just leave you there permanently, finally, and destroy you? And he he brings up the example of these two small cities of the plain, Adma and Zeboim. Maybe if you know your Bible well, you know that they're one of the five cities on the plain in Genesis 19 that are destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're mentioned again in Deuteronomy 29. Essentially, he's talking about the total annihilation of people who live there. James Boyce says, he says this about this text, Their names stand for swift annihilation. 
But on the brink of such judgment, it is God rather than Israel who hesitates. How can I do it, God says, as wrath against sin and love for the people do battle within him? In other words, God is saying, I'm torn. And again, God is using a human analogy. He's speaking in human terms, but it's a revelation of the mystery teaching us something about the nature of God's love. And this is a familiar New Testament theme. How can God be loving and holy? How can he accept us with our sinfulness by his love? Which wins out, holiness or love? And the answer of Scripture is both because of Jesus Christ. I'm sure this is an area that Hosea just longed to fully understand. I'm sure as he wrote and spoke these things, he thought, what does this mean? Because verse 9 goes on to say, God says, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. And then the second half of the verse gives the answer, why? For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. So God is not denying his holiness. He's saying, I am the Holy One, but I will not come in wrath. In other words, total wrath. He's going to judge them. He's going to discipline them. But he also says he's God and not man. There's something about all of this that we as human beings can only understand so far. In Hosea's day, he didn't even understand it as much as we do because we have the New Testament. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ to tell us what this was. Boyce goes on to ask, how much could Hosea have really understood? He must have wondered about this. But the answer is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Romans 3.26 puts the the two very close together. It's a very familiar work. So God did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He's talking about the gospel. And he's saying the gospel solves the apparent contradiction of God's holiness and God's love. Hosea would have been awestruck at the final fulfillment of this in the cross of Jesus Christ. God's love and holiness kiss in the cross of Christ. He knew that these deep mysteries had to do with God being God, had to do with he's the Holy One, his heart of compassion is aroused. Did you ever speculate if an ancient person from that time was you know, brought up in a time warp. I love those sci-fi time warp things. And, you know, you kind of showed them around here in modern times, and they saw cars, and they saw an airplane go overhead, or maybe took an airplane flight, or, you know, they saw TV or the Internet or, you know, your watch, how it worked. What would be the most amazing thing? Do you ever talk about that with your kids? You know, our kids, you say, well, I think it's this. Well, here's a thought for you. If Hosea came to modern time the thing that would blow him away the most would be the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets longed to look into this. They studied to understand how it would be fulfilled. Peter said even angels longed to look into these things. They're they're just craning their necks to see, Peter says, how it's going to be fulfilled And we stand in the blazing day of revelation. Jesus has come. He's died. He has fulfilled the holiness of God so that we as sinners 
can know God's amazing love. Thanks be to God. That's what Hosea is getting at here. Do you understand something of that? Or is all that just, oh, oh, um, yeah, I know that. If so, I wonder if you really know the gospel. Do you really know your sin? Do you really know your desperate need that apart from Jesus Christ, you will end up like Adma and Zeboim, apart from God forever? Flee to Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Well, our final point is this. The pursuing love of God transforms us. Hosea has described this love. He's described what God's going to do. He's not going to fully give up Israel. He's not going to let go of them. He's going to pursue them. Final result is in verses 10 and 11. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. That's where they're in captivity. They're going to come trembling. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Hosea is prophesying the restoration Israel would go into exile in 722, and Judah would follow a little over 100 years after that in 586. And then 70 years after that, the amazing, we would say, miraculous circumstances that the Israelites, all the tribes, remnants of all the tribes, restored to the land. But even the more miraculous part of it than the physical restoration was the spiritual restoration The people were changed, not every last one and not completely and not without sin, but there was a whole new repentance and love for God. And yes, it would wax and wane, but God did a marvelous thing in bringing the people back and restoring them. There was this transformation. They came trembling, not trembling at Assyria anymore, and Assyria had been wiped out by then, but trembling at the Lord, like Isaiah talks about, who, is, who pleases the Lord is the one who trembles at God's word. That's the kind of trembling that the Lord wants, a new sensitivity to the word of God and the holiness of God and the mercy of God. And so I ask again, where are you with Jesus Christ tonight? Maybe you've never come to Christ and you need to bow your head and pray and seek him and maybe tonight in your room, Ask the Lord to show you himself and repent of your sin and turn to him. Or maybe you've strayed from the Lord. Maybe you're undergoing suffering like Johnny has been. And maybe you're wondering about God's love. Does God still love me with this kind of problems? Yes, if you belong to Christ, you know that God pursues you with his unfailing love. You know, Johnny, I mentioned her, it's just maybe helpful for some of you younger folks to know that when the accident happened to her and she was in the hospital room, she asked her friends to help her commit suicide. That's where she was. She didn't want to live anymore. She wanted her friends to help her to take her life. And it's during that time that she started to have friends tell her about Christ and read the word of God to her. And she came to faith in Christ during that time. I don't know where you are tonight. John Newton was not changed by a cringing fear of hell. Even when he was chained on the coast, he was born again. He was saved by the good news of the gospel of God's pursuing love. And I ask you, do you believe that good news? Are you willing to cast yourself on Jesus Christ and his death, on his cross, his resurrection from the dead, and the fact that he is alive? 
and you need to give him your life and submit to him as your Lord. God's wondrous love for us in Christ is a pursuing love, a love that will not let us go. Praise be to God. Father, we do stand in wonder at your love. We thank you that it is your love, it is your grace that changes us more and more as we behold you, as we meditate on your unfailing love, as we reflect on your holiness and your hatred of all sin, and yet you receive us through Jesus Christ. We are astounded at this. Help us to go forth this week more and more changed into the likeness of Christ as we believe your word about who you are. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.